All right. I can't help but notice this morning this middle section is glowing. You're literally radiating with our new decorations. And I'll use this as a time to remind all of our visitors that Grace Community Church rents space and we get really nice leftover wedding decorations from the day before. And so our middle section today gets the dance floor and the chandeliers and everybody else is left out. All right, we come in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. And this is the time where God is faithful to give us what we need as a local church. Faithful to give us what we need as individual disciples. He's faithful to feed us with his word. And one of the things we just sang to the Lord is, Whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. What in the world could a Christian receive that no matter what comes, it is well with our soul? That's what we're going to dig into in our sermon this morning. Let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would display your faithfulness to us, your people this morning, that you would give what is needed. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would demonstrate your power to reveal Christ, to lift up Christ, to lift up Jesus in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would dwell in your temple as the living God in your church. As the God of power, the God who lives, the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who speaks to us through his word. Lord, help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And we'll begin by reading our text together this morning. This is the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. What an awesome passage we have this morning 
that reveals to us the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get several glimpses of his glory as we work through this text. But Jesus is being shown to us this morning from the word of God as the savior of sinners. Matthew has been presenting Jesus and we've been preaching through learning this gospel passage by passage. And after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew has intentionally and repeatedly presented Jesus to us as a man of authority. Ryan mentioned that last week. It's a theme running through chapter 7, chapter 8, and, and now chapter 9 is the authority of Jesus. And you definitely see it in this story. I mean, you never walked into a room and experienced the things that we read about in this story. The power and authority of Jesus Christ. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last verse in Matthew 7, we were told that the hearers of his teaching were astonished at the authority of Jesus. He spoke like no man ever spoke. And then in chapter 8, Matthew gives us three miracles back to back that all demonstrate the authority of Jesus. If you look back to the end of Matthew 8, just noting the headings in your Bible, Jesus calms a storm in Matthew 8, 23. He, that's his, his revealed authority over nature. This man speaks to the winds and the waves and they obey him. He has authority over nature. And then in verse 28, he heals two men with demons, the Gadarenes. And that story reveals the authority of Jesus over the spiritual realm, over Satan, and over all of his servants. He banishes the legion of demons with the word. This man has authority. And then we come to this third snapshot right in a row. Authority over nature. Authority over the spiritual realm. And then this morning we're going to see Jesus' authority over sin. And this is really good news for us because we are sinners. We need the authority of this king. The authority of Jesus over sin. He is the only one with the authority to forgive our sin. And so let's pick up the story in verse 2. In verse 2, we are told that Jesus has crossed back over the sea. He's back in Galilee, continuing his ministry. He's preaching the gospel. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And on this particular day, verse 2 tells us, Behold, some people brought a paralytic to Jesus lying on a bed. Now in Mark chapter 2, we have a parallel passage, another account of this story. And Mark gives us more vivid details into this event than the Gospel of Matthew. For instance, Mark's version tells us that these people were friends of this paralytic man. That his friends brought him to Jesus. In fact, we're told in Mark's gospel that these friends are so determined to bring this man to Jesus, to bring their friend to Jesus. Most of you remember this story. They tore through the roof of the house where Jesus was preaching. There were crowds in the house. There was no space for them. There were crowds outside. There was no space for them. And they're so determined to get their needy 
paralytic friend to Jesus Christ that they tear through the roof and lift this man down. They do whatever is necessary to get their needy friend to Jesus Christ. And I'll just say as, as we pass through you know, this part of the story, what a reminder to us. What a reminder to us. What an example to us that every Christian should be like these unnamed friends in this story. We should do whatever we can to bring our needy loved ones to Jesus Christ. In our prayers, we should be praying for the lost and bringing them to Christ. In our conversations, we should be speaking of Jesus, doing whatever we can to get our loved ones to Jesus Christ. To bring the needy to Jesus. Verse 2 continues with an amazing claim about Jesus. He saw their faith. So they bring their friend to Jesus. And the Bible says that he saw their faith. Paul's right there. One of the things that we know about faith is it's not like you know, tangible, measurable, put it on the scales, or we see it right there. It, it, you know, we, we can see it right there. You can't see faith, but Jesus can see faith. So this phrase shows us that Jesus is peering into the inside of those who are around him. He looks and he sees the outward appearance, and he looks past the outward appearance into the heart, and he sees faith. Jesus sees things that no ordinary man can see. In fact, if we go to John's gospel, John chapter 1 tells the story of one of the first disciples that Jesus calls is a man named Nathaniel. And in John chapter 1 verse 48, Jesus tells Nathaniel these words, Before I called you, I saw you. Isn't that an amazing claim about Jesus Christ? Before I met you, before I called you to follow me, I saw you. I know everything about you. Nothing is hidden from me. I saw you before I called you. Next chapter of John's Gospel, John 2.25, we have this statement about Jesus. He knows what is in man. That glorifies Christ. He's not an ordinary rabbi. He's not an ordinary teacher. The hearts of all are laid bare before Jesus. He saw their faith. And that's a reminder to us that he sees the heart of every person every day. He sees the heart of everyone here today. And on this particular day, in Matthew 9, he saw faith. He peered within and Jesus discerned that these men had faith, they had trust. Now the, the full revelation of Christ is still being unfolded as the Gospels are written. And, you know, we don't have those glorious, you know, uh, letters of Paul. They're not written yet. This, this is still being revealed and unfolding. And so these men don't have, you know, all the things that we would understand as biblical Christology and, 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 and all the pieces and details of the gospel, but what they have is a confidence in Jesus. He's not an ordinary man. He's the Christ. 
And they have enough confidence about Jesus that they know if they get their needy friend to Jesus, this man can deliver. This man can save. This man can rescue. They trusted him. They had faith in Jesus. And Jesus sees their trust and he responds to that faith and he says these beautiful words. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want to mention something about these two you know, ideas back to back. Faith and forgiveness of sins. This is the seed form of what we'll come to know in the New Testament as the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. In other words, it's very important that you understand that this is not how Jesus treats everybody indiscriminately. This is only the response of Jesus to those who believe, to those whom he peers within and he discerns. They have trust in me. To those alone, to the believers, is announced the forgiveness of sin, the pardon of Jesus. And those words reveal the tenderness of Christ. Take heart, my son. This is not just some, you know, you did what's required and you get the forgiveness. He loves this man. With tenderness, Jesus speaks. With kindness, Jesus speaks to him. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. This reveals the mercy of Christ, the love of Christ. And we're going to come back and we're going to dwell on that this morning. We're going to lift that up and enjoy that and glorify Jesus for his perfection. But before we do that, we have to work through what I would call a shocking surprise in this text. And maybe you noticed it as we read this passage together. So understand the surprise. A paralytic is brought to Jesus. That's a real tangible need. This man cannot walk. He's paralyzed. A paralytic is brought to Jesus Christ... And Jesus does not immediately heal his sickness. He does not immediately heal this man's legs. Instead, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus and he announces a word of forgiveness before Jesus announces the word of healing. Now I want you to imagine how shocking this would have been to an onlooker. I mean, you have this needy man. He cannot walk. He's being brought to Jesus because they know that Jesus can deliver him. It's almost like as Jesus announces that pardon to this paralyzed man, it's almost like you can picture the onlooker saying, wait a second. That's not what he asked for. Wait a second. This man needs healing. What, what are you talking about? The forgiveness of sins. We don't understand this. And that's the question we want to work through together this morning. Why does Jesus do this? Or to ask the question in a sharper way, why does Jesus speak to the conscience before he speaks to the body? Why does Jesus do that? Why do we have this intentional order 
as Jesus deals with this man? And the answer is because Jesus knows, Jesus knew and Jesus knows what this man really needed. He knew what this man really needed and he knows what we really need. And he doesn't downplay the physical needs of this man, the temporal needs of this man, but he deals with the ultimate needs first. Jesus discerns that this man has a deeper need than the healing of his paralysis. And that same order and that same truth is true for all of us. We have many needs all across this room, but the deepest need for every human being is the forgiveness of sin. This is the help that we need more than any other help. This is the help that Jesus gives more than any other help. He came into this world to save His people from their sins. It's the deepest need that we have. The most fundamental need for any human being is to be right with God. Sin is a deeper problem than sickness. And this passage shows us that. Our main problem, and this is really hard for us to grasp because we are growing up in a psychologized culture. And what I mean by that is we're constantly told that our main needs, the deepest needs that we have, are to heal the things that others have done to us. We're constantly, you know, bombarded that our deepest problems are the things that have happened to us. And we want to pause right there. We want to acknowledge that it is certainly true that we can be and that we are victims of other people sinning against us. We are. We want to acknowledge also that we are victims of sickness that comes upon us and breaks down our body. We are. There are things that happen to us. There are real needs that we need to bring to Jesus. And He's willing to help us. But our main problem is not those things. It's not the things that have happened to us. Our most fundamental problem is what we have done. And the Bible you know, uh, highlights this over and over and over. Our main problem is not the thing, you know, not our, that we have become victims. Our main problem is that we are criminals before God. We have broken God's law. Every one of us are sinners. We have all sinned. And that means that we have incurred guilt before God, the righteous judge. And that means that our deepest need, our most urgent need, our most fundamental need is we need a way for all of those sins to be removed from His holy presence. And this is why the good news that the New Testament announces, the Christian gospel, the apostolic gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the announcement of a full and free pardon through the finished work of Jesus. Our deepest need is what Jesus provides. 
He's the Savior. We need forgiveness more than we need anything else in this world. I hope you're convinced of that order, that hierarchy that we see in this passage. I hope you're convinced of that, and I hope it's playing out in two ways in your life. I hope this order is playing out in the way that you pray for those that you love. Because I hope as we peer into our prayer life all across across this room, that if you saw the way that we're praying for those that we love, that the things we're asking for more than anything else are for salvation through Jesus Christ. I hope this is how you're praying for your children. That, you know, in spite of all the prayers, in light of all the prayers of God give them good friendships, God make them smart. God, provide for them, you know, a a social network and and friendships at this local church. God, provide a spouse for them one day that loves Jesus and follows Jesus. Provide for them skills and and giftings and, and, and circumstances where they can serve you. I hope underneath all of that you're crying out, save them, Lord. Forgive them from their, from their sin. Wash them clean in the blood of Jesus. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Make them new creations in Jesus Christ. I hope that's how we're praying for those that we love. Not just for a bunch of temporal things that will pass away one day. But for eternal gifts. Eternal blessings. I also hope that this order is, pl- is playing out. And what you find yourself most thankful for in the secret place, when you express thanksgiving to God and you unload thanksgiving for all the good gifts that God has given you. Things like, you know, being able to gather freely and worship Jesus in this this nation. Things like a a healthy local church to be a part of. Things like a a marriage, a God-glorifying marriage that that God may have given you, our, our godly children that are walking with Jesus. I hope underneath all of that, the thing that you find yourself most thankful for is my name is written in heaven. All of my sins have been removed from the presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ. I hope we believe this stuff. Because there's an order here. There's a reason why Jesus speaks to the conscience before he speaks to the body. I want to remind us that all the other blessings that we receive, all the things of this world, and even the sufferings of this world, all of those things are subordinate because they have an expiration date. There's a a time and a place where those things are not going to be here anymore, but the forgiveness of sin lasts forever. No expiration date. Eternal salvation. And Jesus has come as the one who can meet this greatest need. And he pronounces this verdict to this sinner. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Not everyone accepts this claim about Jesus. Not everyone does today. And not everyone did in this story. Verse 3 shows us this. That there were scribes in the surrounding crowd that heard what Jesus said and they charged him with blasphemy. Verse 3. 
Now, I want you to imagine how evil it is for God to send His only Son into this world to save enemies, to save sinners. And for the response of those enemies and sinners that Jesus is sent to save, to say that man is nothing but a blasphemer. I want you to think about how evil and how wicked it is to think of Jesus Christ as a blasphemer. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 4. That those who reject him in their heart as a blasphemer, Jesus says, that's evil inside of you. That's all that is, is evil inside your heart that causes you to reject Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is pictured to us in verse 4 as the one who sees the inside. Verse 4 says this, he, know, he knew their thoughts. In other words, when they, uh, when they charged Jesus with blasphemy, it's not like Jesus overheard them talking about him. Can you believe that man said that? They weren't speaking out loud. They just thought it in their mind. And Jesus saw it. And, and he responded to their wickedness. And again, we're confronted with this reality. He sees things that no ordinary man can see. And what a reminder for us that the things that we're going to be held accountable for on the final day are not external things only. It's so helpful for us to know that. We can feel so much better about ourselves than we should if we just manipulate the standards. And if the standards are, I never killed anybody and I never acted on this stuff, you know, on the outside. But this text reminds us that, we're, that God sees not only the things that we do with our hands, not only the words that we speak with our tongues. He sees the thought that we think in the secret heart. He sees it. It's laid bare before him, and we're accountable for all of it. All of the evil, the evil that we, we do, the evil that we speak, the evil that we think, we are accountable for. Now, the scribes got part of this right in this sense. They rightly understood that when Jesus pronounced the forgiveness of sin... That Jesus was acting as God. They were right in what they perceived that Jesus was doing. Yet they wrongly charged him with blasphemy. And it would have been blasphemy if anyone else besides Jesus said what Jesus said. Why? Because the Bible says, Mark chapter 2 verse 7, that only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. I want you to ponder, why is that true? Why is it that only God can forgive your sin? Only God is the judge? Only God can dispense forgiveness? Why is that true? One of the answers to that question is understanding that sin is ultimately against God. All sin is ultimately against God. We see this in Psalm 51, verse 4. David 
says these words. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. King David said that in a prayer of confession to God. Now the context of those words are David's sin with Bathsheba. And so if you start looking at the context around Psalm 51, you're thinking, wait a second, he sinned against everybody. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Uriah's family. He sinned against Bathsheba's family. He sinned against his children. He sinned against the whole nation as their representative king. What do you mean against you and you alone have I sinned? He sinned against everybody. And we understand this when we understand that every sin that we commit horizontally is ultimately a sin vertically before God. All sin is against God. I want to give you you know, an example of this. If sin is against God, then that means that only God can forgive us of our sin. I was thinking about... Uh, an appropriate example, and I needed three people, and I was thinking, you know, three different people in the church, and it just hit me. Aha! We have triplets in our church. You know, that's a perfect group of three. So I want to give you an example of the Hairston triplets, Brooke and Kelsey and Drew. And let's just say that they all have cars, and, and Brooke decides one day that she's going to borrow Kelsey's car, and Brooke takes it out for a drive and just wrecks the car, totally demolishes it. It's not somebody else's fault. It's her fault. Brooke wrecks Kelsey's car. She's guilty. Now, I want you to think about how wrong and how, you know, uh, you, 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 how, how wrong this will be, how unfitting this will be. You wouldn't even understand it if Drew comes in, you know, off the sideline and he says, Brooke, I want you to understand, you're, I forgive you for that. Kelsey's standing off in the corner, scratching her head, saying, what do you mean you forgive? That's my car. She wrecked my car. You can't forgive her for wrecking my car. You understand it, right? You can only forgive someone if sin is against you. And this is the kind of thing that the scribes understood that Jesus was doing. They knew that only God can forgive sin. And so they're standing off to the side and they're saying, what do you mean? They sinned against, he sinned against God. What do you mean by, you know, telling this man your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus is sitting back and saying, exactly. Only God can forgive sin. Exactly. By this word of pardon, Jesus is claiming to be God and human flesh. This happens over and over and over again in the Gospels. Some people have really, really, you know, not well thought out, to put it mildly, understanding of Jesus. That Jesus was a gentle teacher. He taught some good things. Man, Jesus is teaching on love your enemies. Man, no one ever spoke like this man. And you follow up, oh yeah, why'd they crucify him? Why would they crucify a man that's just so gentle, you know, nobody ever spoke like this man? The Bible tells us why they crucified him. They crucified Jesus as a blasphemer. This man claimed to be God. That's exactly why they crucified him. That's exactly what Jesus is claiming in this passage is to be God in human flesh. Only God can forgive sin, yet Jesus forgives sin. 
Jesus is God. He doesn't just say it. He demonstrates his authority to forgive sin in this passage. And he does it in the form of a question in verse 5. He says, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? So this is a, this is a little harder to understand than, than you might think you know, on the front end. Which is easier to say? Well, they're equally easy to pronounce. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Which is easier to you know, verbally announce? What Jesus has in mind is something different. One is easier to say than the other in the sense that many people could, you know, just walk down the street to an indiscriminate crowd and say, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And it's easy because he doesn't have to verify it. Like, there's nothing to verify. You're dealing in this invisible, intangible realm. There's no evidence that the sins are forgiven. So you can just pretend all day long. Sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. It's easy to say. But what about the other thing? What about if you, you know, decided to walk down, you know, a crowded street in a mega city with a bunch of, you know, paralyzed, needy, homeless men. And you walk by about a hundred of them and you say, rise and walk, 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 rise and walk. And you get to the end of the line and nobody moves an inch. Everybody knows that you are a pretender. That you're just, you're just making stuff up. You're a pretender. In other words, that, that thing is easy to verify. You don't have the power to heal the lame. In order to demonstrate that Jesus is able to give forgiveness that you cannot see, Jesus gives a visible demonstration of what you can see. Verse 6, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 7, the paralytic man rose and he went home. Jesus was not a pretender. He spoke to the megastorm and it obeyed him. He spoke to the demons and they obeyed him. He spoke to the disease and it obeyed him. And Jesus is building this logical argument all, the, all along the way. I'm doing these visible things. So that you understand that I'm the one that has the authority to do the main thing. That's the point of all the miracles in the gospel. To validate Jesus as the Christ, the one who can forgive us of our sin. And this was a glorious day. Verse 8 tells us that the crowds glorified God. Some were afraid about what they had seen. And what a day this was for this one man. He was forgiven and he was healed in the same day. He received two gifts from Jesus Christ. And yet this passage teaches us which gift was the greater gift that this man received. Jesus healed him to demonstrate, verse 6, that you would know, that we would know, that he has the authority on earth 
to forgive sins. And so forgiveness of sin is the greater miracle in this story. And I want to just, you know, take some uh, license for just a moment. I want us just to imagine this man coming to address us this morning. Imagine what he would say if we were to ask him which is the greater gift. He's been with Jesus for almost 2,000 years. And imagine him saying something like this, friend... That was the greatest day of my life. They let me down through that roof. And I stared into the eyes of the Savior. And he was full of compassion and mercy. And then Jesus opened his mouth and he shocked us all. He shocked all of us. He looked right at me and he said, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. I immediately heard an argument break out in the corner of the room. And then Jesus looked at me again and commanded me, Stand up, grab your stretcher, and walk home. With nothing but a word, Jesus healed me. But with the knowledge I now have, I realize that what I needed most on that day was the word of forgiveness. You see, eventually my healed body succumbed to weakness and I died. But that word of pardon that Jesus pronounced over me abides to this very day. With those words, He gave me eternal life. Life forever in His presence. Do you understand that eternal perspective? If you could just get this idea of what you're going to need in a hundred years, you'd see it so clearly. You wouldn't live for those temporal things. You would seek the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. He's the Savior. The forgiveness that Jesus announces in this passage is no cheap forgiveness. And I think that's worth mentioning. That this story does not tell us everything. This is one snippet of a whole gospel. And so there's things that we don't, that we don't get revealed to the end of this gospel. The story doesn't tell us everything. And one of the things that we could falsely understand about Jesus is Jesus is nice, Jesus is kind, and Jesus' job is to forgive us. And he can just dispense that forgiveness you know, willy-nilly of your sins are forgiven. In this cheap way, that doesn't cost Jesus anything. But if we read the whole story, if we read the whole gospel, we understand that this forgiveness that Jesus gives is very costly to Jesus Christ. Very costly to Christ. Because God is righteous... He only grants forgiveness in a way that shows His righteousness. That is so important for you to understand. The only kind of mercy that God extends to sinners is a just mercy. He will never be merciful and gracious in a way that compromises His character. He will only be merciful and gracious in a way that demonstrates His righteousness. 
And this is why the Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's just true. It's true because of the holiness and the righteousness of God. It's true that God is merciful. It's true that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, but He does it in such a way that demonstrates that God is righteous. And this is through the blood sacrifice. Forgiveness requires an atonement. A blood sacrifice before a holy God. But there is no sacrifice in this story. So it leaves us pondering on what basis did Jesus extend pardon to this man. And we may be tempted to think maybe it was on the basis of all those Old Testament sacrifices. Maybe that man had offered a ram in the temple or a bull in the temple in Jerusalem, just like Moses had commanded. Maybe it was on the basis of that that Jesus pronounced the pardon. And the Bible says, nope. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, Jesus was not forgiving this man on the basis of any past sacrifice. He was forgiving this man on the basis of a future sacrifice that he was going to offer in his own flesh. And we get to that sacrifice at the end of Matthew's gospel where he's crucified as the Lamb of God and the Savior of sinners. Jesus' death was designed by God to be retroactive. And I'll explain that. And I think it will help you so much when you think about the Old Testament and God's forgiveness in the Old Testament. There's a retroactive feature to the death of Christ. This once for all sacrifice of sin. Listen to Hebrews 9.15. His death, Jesus' death redeems, listen, from transgressions committed under the first covenant means that he, as the high priest, the Lamb of God, when he lays his holy offering on the mercy seat of heaven, it goes backwards and it covers all the sins of all the saints who trusted in the promise of God from the very beginning of time to the very end of time. One sacrifice for sin. One way of salvation. And so Jesus announces this pardon with a forward look to the sacrifice that he's going to offer in his own flesh. Romans 3 gets at the same idea from a little you know, different angle. It tells us that because God extended forgiveness in the Old Testament, when there was no ultimate sacrifice for sin, and even this story would fall into that category of Jesus extending forgiveness in the Gospels before the atoning sacrifice was offered, that God actually needed to vindicate His righteousness in the forgiveness of sinners. Romans 3 teaches us this, that Romans 3, 25 and 26, that through the cross of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated His righteousness, not only His mercy, His just mercy, His righteousness was demonstrated on the cross that God would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One of the ways you can get 
to this idea really quick to someone who does not understand the gospel. They believe in this cheap, you know, bloodless forgiveness. As you say, tell me exactly how these things can be true. How can God be just and the justifier? How can God be righteous and merciful? And this is the only way. The demonstration of the righteousness of God. The demonstration of the mercy of God. It was at the cross of Christ that God showed himself to be not only the righteous one, but the Savior. It's a just mercy. It's not a cheap forgiveness. This is Jesus Christ presented to us in Matthew 9. The one who forgives sinners is the one who died in our place. And we're going to meditate on his glory together this morning. And I have good news for you today. That because Jesus died for sin and rose from the dead as the living Lord. Jesus still says these words. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He's the living Savior. He pronounces the pardon in the present tense. He still does this. He still saves sinners. He promises forgiveness to all who repent, to all who trust in Him. He bestows His riches to all who call on His name. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. I want to ask you this morning, have you heard those words? Has the Holy Spirit of God applied those words to your heart and brought you comfort and gave you assurance that all of your sins are washed clean and wiped away through the blood of Jesus? Do you know this blessing of having your ultimate need already met? Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's blessing. Do you know this blessing? This is the blessing that someone can receive. And whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. How do you sing praise to God and have cancer? You do it with the joy of sin forgiven, that your greatest need is already met. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. If you don't know this blessing, you should come to Jesus. You should come to him with faith. With simple, childlike faith, you should have faith this morning that Jesus can save you. Jesus is a gracious king. He's a gracious king. He's a king. He has all authority and he will crush his enemies on the final day. But he's the king of grace that calls us to come to repent and receive forgiveness of sin. The free gift of righteousness. Matthew has put a spotlight on the authority of Jesus. And this text gives us a beautiful glimpse into how Jesus uses his kingly authority. He does it to forgive his people from their sins. 
And I, w- I want you to think about how backwards that, that might be to you, that you have the highest of kings, the highest of authority. Nature obeys him. Demons obey him. And sinners come before him. And we're, we, we might be thinking, man, he could crush us at any moment. He speaks to hurricanes and they obey him. And I'm guilty before him. And I'm his enemy and I'm offended him. And the gospel tells us that he'll use all of that authority to work your salvation. That's what kind of king Jesus is. He's the king of grace. He uses all of this authority to save his people from their sins. He's the true and better Joseph. Joseph's story is at at the very end of the book of Genesis. Joseph was sinned against by his brothers, sold into slavery... But Joseph was raised to the right hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt. He received all the power of Egypt. We're told in the book of Genesis that Joseph had this announcement that went before him. Everywhere he went in Egypt, the announcement said, bow the knee. Bow the knee to Joseph. He could bind princes at his pleasure. He had authority in Egypt. And yet the book of Genesis shows us that Joseph uses this kingly authority not to crush the brothers that sinned against him, but to forgive the brothers that sinned against him. And not only to forgive them, but to to provide for everything that they need. And that's just a little glimpse of how Jesus uses his authority to forgive his people of their sins. He came into the world to save sinners. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Just break down that phrase for just a moment. Jesus today, through his word, to every Christian says, take heart. And that means what, it means what, he, what he says. It means take heart. Be encouraged this morning. Lift up your countenance. Be encouraged this morning. Jesus says, take heart. And then he says this, my son. Or if you're a sister in Christ this morning, substitute my daughter. And that phrase reminds us, he loves us. We are dear to him. We are his beloved ones. It's not just this far off relationship. He says, take heart. Be encouraged. My son, my daughter. Then he says this, your sins. Not just other people's sins. He says your sins. Personal word from Jesus Christ to every Christian. Your sins. In the plural. Sins. Not sin. Your sins. All of them. Every one of them. Jesus said are forgiven. They're gone. They're gone. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. And whose sin is is covered. Church, what a reason we have to rejoice in Jesus Christ this morning that our sins have been forgiven. We're going to sing that song for a million years and a million years and a million years. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He ransomed us from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. Our greatest need has already been met this morning by our King, the King of grace. And so I exhort you and encourage you this morning. Take heart. 
Be joyful in your Savior today. Be joyful. Take heart. Be encouraged. Rest in His finished work. If you trust in Him, the verdict has already been pronounced. Your sins are gone. They're forgiven. And because He pronounced the verdict as the one with all authority, His verdict is final. And that's so comforting to us. That when He pronounces forgiveness, there's a finality to it. There's a finality to justification. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's God who delivered that verdict. His verdict is final. It comes with royal authority from the king of the kingdom of heaven. It cannot be altered. It's like the law of the Medes and the Persians in the book of Esther. The the king gives the decree and it can't be changed. And the king doesn't want to change it. It will never be altered. Your sins are forgiven. The, The verdict has come with authority. The authority of the king. The authority of the judge. And listen, he signed it with his own blood. He sealed that pardon with his own blood. So what should we do? We should take heart. We should be encouraged. Romans 8 begins with this promise that we will never be condemned because of what Jesus has done. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's born it all. And that very same chapter ends with a promise that because there is no more condemnation, there will never be any separation from our God. No separation from the love of Christ. And so what should we do? How should we respond this morning? We should rejoice with great joy. We should take heart this morning as the church of Jesus Christ. And we should worship God for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks today for your word. And God, we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for those today who are here that don't know you. God, we pray that you would help them see the glory of Christ, the infinite and eternal value of forgiveness of sin. God, we pray that you would overpower and overrule those small thoughts of sin and those small thoughts of guilt. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and that you would show us how much we need Jesus. Lord, we pray as a church that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.